Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. The Britflix podcast comes absolutely free, so can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done, and it'll be really helpful, trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time in your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and this episode's guest is Chelsea Stardust. Welcome to the show. Hello, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. Right. We're going to pretend for energy levels on the podcast. It's eight o'clock in UK. You can join me in that time zone for the, per- for the duration of this podcast. So we're going to do a kind of early evening chat. How does that sound to you? I'd love that. Good. Right then. We've not come, obviously, to talk about time zones. We've come to talk about your fantastic film, Satanic Panic, which is playing at at Grimfest. And uh, before we go into any more detail, do you want to give the listener a brief synopsis as to what Satanic Panic is all about? Uh, Yeah, so Satanic Panic is the story of a um, 20-something pizza delivery girl. It's her first day on the job, mm-hmm. and uh, she's delivering pizzas in all different neighborhoods and not getting any tips. And so her last delivery of the day is in a very upscale neighborhood. She thinks, this is my chance to make some money today. She goes with this big delivery and gets no tip. So she decides to take it upon herself to go after that tip And little does she know that the people inside the house that she basically breaks into to go after her tip are all Satanists and are preparing for a for Baphomet to come. It's Beltane. They're preparing for him to come and they need a virgin. And she just happens to be one. Um, And then chaos ensues. And that's all I will say, because um, it goes on an absolutely wild ride from there. Um, but that will set you up for the chaos to come. Indeed, indeed. Now, um, you directed this film, and the screenplay is credited um, to story by Ted Gagan and uh, Grady Hendrix with the screenplay by Grady Hendrix. Um, 
So from just to give people an insight into sort of how this process works for filmmaking, at what stage do you get involved with Satanic Panic um, as the director when, when these people are writing it? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so I actually had read the script mm -hmm. um, previous to it being sent to my agents for my consideration to direct. A friend of mine actually sent it to me because she knew it came across her desk at a production company she worked at, and she knew I was a fan of Grady's writing. I love um, my best friend's exorcism and paperbacks from hell and horror store um, because he's a novelist. And mm -hmm. so I was a huge fan of his work. And I also love Ted's movies. So when I, you know, she said, I thought you might like this and I read it and I loved it. And I wrote her back and I said, oh my God, this script is so, I called it batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't wait to see this made. I can't wait to see who makes this. And then cut to you know, about six months later, and I had just finished, I had just wrapped on my first movie, um, All That We Destroy, that I did for Blumhouse and Hulu. Mm -hmm. And um, my reps had this script sent to them from Fangoria, and they reached out, they're like, hey, this script was sent to us for your consideration. And I was shocked because I said, I've actually, I've read this. <laughs> I said, I know exactly what this is. Let me reread it and see if anything's changed in the script in the last six months. And uh, I read it and still loved it. And I said, I want this movie. Um, I obviously wasn't, you know, they were the Fangoria, I think, went out to several people yeah. for to, to direct it. And so I just I said, I'd love to talk to the producers and pitch my vision for the movie. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had a conference call with uh, Dallas Sanye and Amer Amanda Presmick at Fangoria. And I just, you know, um, and also uh, Grady's manager, Adam Goldworm, um, is a producer on it as well. And he was on the call. And so I just pitched them um, my vision and what I wanted to make, the, how I wanted to make the movie and what I wanted it to, to be like. I sort of gave comparisons of films like Jennifer's Body and Drag Me to Hell um, and Evil Dead 2, sort of walking that fine line of horror and comedy. Yeah. And uh, and then I also sent them, I was like very persistent. I also sent a follow-up email um, to I actually knew Adam Goldworm personally, and so I sent an email to him and I said, "Could you forward this on to Fangoria?" And you know, I really want to do this. And so I had my cinematographer read it, and we talked about how we wanted to shoot it, and we pulled stills from other movies, and we put it all in a big email. And I said, you know, I sent them, you know, music I wanted for the movie and all this stuff, and uh, they said yes. And I think it's because I had a really clear vision of what I wanted the movie to be. Like I was very um, particular on, on my references and how I wanted to shoot it. And obviously it was all going to be practical effects and how I was going to balance comedy and horror, um, because I come from a comedy and a horror background. Yeah. And I think I might've been the only person who, that they were considering who did, like I've worked for comedy producers and I've worked for a horror producer yeah. and a horror director. So I think they, <clears throat> you know, and I, and I know they did their homework. I know they talked to Blumhouse, my friend Ryan Turek over there, and they saw my first movie. So they were doing homework on their end. And then they said yes. And I had a couple notes on the script. So so obviously the script was written without my involvement. Yeah. But um, I had some notes uh, for, for Grady, and I was very nervous to give them to him yeah, because yeah, I had yeah. never – yeah, it's Grady Hendricks, who I'm – you know, and so that was a big deal to me. And I, you know, I was very nervous about it, but I – got on a call with him and I first told him like, you know, how, how much I love his, his writing. And I said, however, I do have a couple notes. 
And I told him what they were. He loved all of them and took all of them. And uh, we had such a great conversation. I really wanted to get in his head about what his vision for the movie is and what his inspirations were, um, because I'm basically bringing his words to life. And I wanted to make him happy with that as well. So um, and, you know, we sort of collaborated on the script notes. And then right before we shot the movie, he came out to Texas and we did a table read and did a couple more adjustments on the script because hearing it out loud is so, so important. I was going to say, can, can you say like what, what, what were the lessons learned from a table read? You know, given you've, oh, you've, yeah. got, you've got all this involvement, you've given your vision, you're on board, you're talking to the guy that's wrote it. And then you all as a kind of a stakeholders in it get to hear people say it, which is obviously a kind of once removed Process, yeah, you can, and we had some of the cast there, mm -hmm. um, so we were able to hear it coming from them. Ah, um, okay. But you actually you kind of figure out, like, because we were shooting in Texas, mm -hmm. we couldn't have all the cast there at the same time because of how the schedule was. So I know we had Haley there, our lead, um, and a few other people. But hearing it out loud is so helpful because you you can kind of tell like what's working joke wise and um well you know or if a sentence doesn't sound right or you know something that you may have missed in the script or even logic issues come out sometimes too where it's like oh wait a second how is this related to this related to that and you catch those things because if you catch it someone else is going to catch it later down the line as yeah. as an audience member so we were able to catch a lot of things and anything i needed clarity from grady on because he wasn't going to be able to be on set. Like I love to have a writer on set with me. I, cause I don't write, I, I strictly direct, but I love working with writers and I love having them on set. Not everyone, not every director is like that, but right, okay. I love that. And he wasn't able to, because he was in the middle of the, we sold our souls book tour. So, um, so basically I was like, I had to get all the information out of him <laughs> at yeah, one yeah, yeah. time. And, um, out of interest then, what would, what would be a sort of kit from that, knowing you couldn't have him on set? What, what key information were you able to get out that, that, that oh helped my, you oh with goodness, the film? Yeah. So many things. So while he was in Texas, I just took advantage of all of his time. So yeah. for example, Sam, um, Haley Griffith's character, she has this, um, monologue basically during this skin sealing scene with Ruby Modine, Judy in mm -hmm. the movie. And she talks about her battle with cancer. So I wanted, so we ended up doing a rehearsal of that scene with Grady, with the girls and able to talk about Sam's backstory that she didn't get to go to college. Like all these things that I wanted to know about the character that Haley also needs to know about the character. And yes, I could have come up with that myself as the director, but I wanted to hear it from Grady because, you know, there's a lot of details in that scene and we wanted to know, I wanted to know everything about Sam so then Haley and I could work together on the character mm. and, you know, Haley brings her, um, her, her acting chops to it and adds her layer to it. But I wanted first to get all of the info from Grady and also the dynamic of, um, uh, Ruby Modine's character, Judy, her relationship with her parents and, um, you know, maybe her relationship with friends and the, you know, cult community and that, that Sam is probably the first like real person she's interacted with like not within this bubble of her mm. life um and her first real friendship probably and so we were really able to dig into that um and that was so it was so wonderful to have that and then i'm armed with any question the actor might have um i already know you know the answers too so okay really yeah helpful. so rather than trying to have to fill in the gaps you kind of you kind of got most of it most of it sort of uh, you, 
you sort of fought, what is it, for forearmed is forewarned as it were <laughs> yeah and and I also like break down so I ended up doing like before we got on set even I had a call with Grady and we went through every scene of the script wow. you know line by line talking about all right I know what's being said here but what's under the surface like what's you know deeper on a deeper level for every single line that the mm. characters were saying like we really dug in because i wanted to be prepared as a director and then i wanted to be prepared for my cast as well so um and uh, that was a really and i've done that i did that same sort of process with the writers on my first movie and it was really helpful so um because ultimately like in a way as the director like yes you are bringing this to life but you are also a vessel for the writer and i think the writer is one of the most important parts on a feature film and i think they always kind of get um neglected a little bit whereas in tv the writer is king and the director is sort of the guest um i think it's sort of for some reason the opposite in features um it's an odd it's an odd logic isn't it because they're both yeah, visual media <laughs> exactly and i think like writers and editors are the two most underrated um positions on a, on a film. Mm. So, um, but anyways, it was an incredible process and working with Grady was such a treat and, um, I'm so glad I got to bring something of his to life. So it is good to meet your idols then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think so. Now, uh, I was, I was impressed by the, the, the guy that reviewed, um, Satanic Panic for, for, uh, for Britflix, uh, when it played at Fright Fest, come at, introduced, describing your film with a, a a lovely turn of phrase, um, which was to say that uh, satanic panic is like being hit in the face by a beautiful strawberry-scented <laughs> baseball bat. It hurts your eyes, <laughs> but the smell is so good, you want to go back and experience more. Um, yeah. Can you tell me what the ingredients are for that? Because <laughs> I, um, I think comedy horror is one of those things where it's either peaches and cream or it's oil and water, and I think one of the, obviously one of the what, what, you, what you achieve brilliantly is that you you you've gone you've got the you've achieved the peaches and cream just to stay with the fruit metaphor, um, in the <laughs> sense of it's funny and it's absurd, but also um, Sam's Sam's jeopardy is never far from the surface of what's going on, so we feel and we panic for her in the same way as we're laughing as well at what at what you throw at us. Um, how how as a director, because obviously. Comedy and horror yeah. are about timing, but they're not about the right. same timing, are they? Right. I think, I mean, they are, yeah, exactly. They're related in the sense that if you can time a laugh, you can time a scare. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's both, It's and I've been on sets, I've been on comedy sets, and I've been on horror sets. And mm -hmm. timing both of those things is incredibly difficult, and it is an art. And for me to sort of prepare for that, I went back and watched a lot of the horror comedies that I loved. Um, and that, you know, helped me sort of navigate that. So I went, you know, some of the ones I referenced already, but Drag Me to Hell and Evil mm -hmm. Dead 2 and Jennifer's Body. And um, I went back and sort of rewatched re those and was sort of like, well, what makes these work? Because it is such a difficult um, line to walk. And honestly, I was really lucky with the, the talent, with the actors in this movie. Um, almost all of them have experience in both genres. Um, and I was just very clear with what I wanted to, to do with it. And I wanted to embrace sort of, there's obviously a campiness to it. There's mm -hmm. the, the script is absolutely insane. You're seeing things that you haven't really seen in horror cinema or American 
horror cinema. Like a, Grady pulls a lot of references from Asian cinema um, for this movie specifically, and so I was like, I'm really excited <laughs> to bring that to, to like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, and quite on, and I was really excited to to bring that uh, to bring that to life. But it was basically just working with the actors and talking about you know the the tone and how it was going to play throughout the movie and also giving them my references, like making sure everybody knew the stuff I was pulling from, because even though there are some absolutely insane um, moments, there's a lot of heart in the movie as well. And so especially like one of my favorite scenes is with um, Sam and Judy in the skin ceiling in the kitchen where she's writing all over her to, to get rid of the spell gypsies casting on her. And so, yeah, you're seeing this insane um, thing happened to this, to this woman as, you know, she's having this spell put on her and is basically like on the brink of death while this other character who's, you know, trying to distract her is telling a story about her brush with death and, you know, sort of has this darker moment in the movie, but yet there's still lightheartedness within that. Like she's, you know, tell me a story. Oh, once upon a time, there was a boy named Harry Potter. She's like, are you kidding me? Like, that's not what I want you to tell. Like, there's these <laughs> moments. And also one of my favorite points in the movie is when the, the two girls are in the kitchen after the skin ceiling. And Judy says, you know, I'm you're a blue you're a blue collar badass who just won't quit. And I'm a spoiled brat with a gun. They don't stand a chance. And that to me is like the heart of the movie, because you have this character who's so full of attitude, which is Judy. And you have Sam, who's, you know, still figuring out who she is. Um, and then this insane surrounding of all these other characters around them who are, you know, they're going on this sort of madcap adventure, uh, what the, but is, but there's still so much darkness around it. And so balancing that, I just got really lucky with, um, the talent. Cause I think they, they did a lot of the heavy lifting for me. <laughs> oh no, sure, no, of course, of course. There's a lovely, there's a lovely dramatic irony to, to satanic panic in the sense of, um, you know, the original Satanic Panic, as in the 80s, uh, 80s right. USA in, you know, middle class suburbia where, you know, all popular culture was going to infect children's brains with the devil. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. then, and then what you've done is gone, do you know what? The rich and powerful, they're all worshipping the devil and they're doing it in gated <laughs> communities. It's a lovely, what, what Grady's come up with is a, is a lovely dramatic irony of the, of the, it's like the inverse of Satanic Panic, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, when... If, if, if in a, on a production, and obviously you've got a lot of um, sort of beautiful set pieces in there, and and uh, all films are kind of, you know, resources are finite and stuff. So when you when you were in that planning stage and um, and, and and sort of imagining how you're going to take that page to the screen, what was some of the, what some of the set pieces that you sort of um, you saw as your biggest challenge? And can you can you give us examples of where you kind of creatively solved the problem where it wasn't just about about the money and the resources you had available. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we had to really um, be, uh, like, there was so much pre-production planning and organizing with the movie um, because, we only, again, we only had, eight, I mean, we only had 18 days to shoot it. Yeah. Um, and we, had, we were dealing with six-day weeks. Two of those were night shoots. So we only have one day to turn around, which is really, um, really tough. So knowing this, um, we knew this going into shooting. So my cinematographer and I, you know, we, our process, um, and he shot my, his name is Mark Evans. He shot my first movie and every short film I've done basically. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but how we how we prepped knowing that we had these huge set pieces so some, so things like the skin ceiling scene that I mentioned that's mm-hmm. a big one um the the ending the finale mm-hmm. <laughs> was was actually probably the one I was like the most nervous about because there were so many moving parts we're dealing with not only are we dealing with a baphomet um <laughs> we're dealing with uh, a person drowning from the inside out we're dealing with decapitation we're dealing with a birth we're dealing with you know fake pregnancy bellies we're dealing with rabbits um we have a child on set like we're de- we, we have everything and fire so all the things that you don't want <laughs> that yeah, are like yeah. the worst things to have you know having the flaming pentagram and also it was incredibly cold i think it was like 35 40 degrees that night mm. um both the, both those nights i think we split that up into two nights um and so you know not only were we up against the elements and people basically naked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. that, that, so, so Mark and I basically, we took, so every scene of the movie, we shot with um, these little plastic models, these little plastic figures that art students use. They pose for drawing. Yeah. I know what you mean. So we use, yeah. So we use these little, these little models and we built out the set for every scene and we shot um, the movie with, and we took an iPhone and there's an app on the iPhone that you can basically match up your camera and your lenses. No way. And yeah, yeah. You can, you can like basically do all these settings and then you can shoot the whole thing. So every single time you take a picture on your phone, that's a shot of your movie. So we did that for the entire thing, mm-hmm. which took us about three weeks because keep in mind we're, we're doing other things like where I'm, I'm taking meetings and doing other prep work, but it took us about three weeks to do it. Um, and then that gets all those photos get ingested into a, a Google document. Um, and we basically write, you know, um, the kind of shot it is, whether it's, you can tell by the photo, but if it's a medium shot close up, you know, all that, if we need any extra equipment for it, Um, and then basically, so it's broken down by scene and then that ends up going to all our department heads. So every day of shooting, they get the scenes and they get a little packet with all the shots in the scene we're shooting that day. So everyone knows, um, how many shots each scene are going to take, what we're going to require in terms of special equipment, um, what we're going to see. So, so special effects knows and costumes, hair and makeup, all that stuff. And everyone kind of has an idea, um, so it's super helpful to have. Um, however, because of our schedule, you do end up having to adapt. You do end up having to take your big Sharpie. Like you meet with your AD and, the, you know, she's she's looking at our shots and she's like, all right, let's get out the Sharpie. We can't do all of these because we just don't have the <laughs> So then you also, and you can see how your movie's, how your movie's going to cut together as well. So it's really helpful to have that. Oh, yeah. No, um, so, yeah, it's like a kind of, like a pre, <laughs> pre. It is. It's a, it's a, now what I, now my dream would be to, go into the location with a camera and take still photos with talent yeah. and walk through, but we just don't have that luxury. Like I, we just, you know, that's what comes with bigger budgets and we just haven't had the chance to do that. So, um, but it, this, you know, worked great and we were able to, so, so that way we're not really forgetting shots and, um, you know, but of course there ends up being like, oh, we need these insert shots or, you know, uh, uh, um, the insert shots and establishing shots are so, so important. And yeah. a lot of times they get forgotten or put on the last shot of the day or whatever. Um, we ended up shooting, I had my, um, assistant, 
um, be the second unit director for me and go shoot a bunch of inserts on the last day of shooting because we just didn't have time to get them. And we used every single one of them. So I'm so wow. glad we did that. But it's just, it was a lot, you know, those big set pieces that we have to shoot. Um, it's a lot, especially when you're dealing with special effects and stunts and all that stuff. Um, you know, it can be a little bit nerve wracking, but as long as you go in prepared and your talent feels um, comfortable and safe with everything happening, um, then usually it can turn out all right. <laughs> yeah, no, because it, it sounds like what, the way you're describing it, like, and, you, and if I think about where you started it, about even with like the, the script reading to then the, the, you know, the planning of these shots and stuff, it's it's sort of like it's 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 building confidence in you in terms of when you turn up, you know what's going to happen, but also then the communication to everyone else that's got a role to play in achieving it becomes so much clearer because they're all getting the same information. They're not waiting. No one's waiting to be told. It's sort of like it's based. The questions then become about like finite stuff as opposed to, so what are we doing now kind of thing. Right. Right. Exactly. And we had two cameras on this movie, um, which is something we had to fight for, but we were so nervous about making, the, obviously if you see the movie, you see how ambitious it is, how much is going on. Mm. And um, we definitely need, you know, a, the dream is a one camera <laughs> movie, but um, we just didn't have time to, we're like, we're not going to be able to shoot the whole thing if we just have one camera. So, um, what's the benefit how many of moving the pieces so there? for the layperson listening then who, who, who may not understand that, that kind of what that gives you, even though in an orthodoxy way, you want the one camera because then you obviously setting up each shot as you go. What's the, what does the two camera thing give you the benefit of in kind of where, where yeah. resources are limited? Yeah, it's tough because it gives you um, the opportunity to work faster. So speed, mm -hmm. because so example, for example, the skin sealing scene we shot, we had such a short amount of time to shoot that scene that we had to shoot two cameras. So basically you have one camera on one actor and one camera on the other. So you're getting the cross coverage. Mm -hmm. um, however, you really have to think about your you're limited in what you can do with your shot because if you move too far one way, you could see the camera. So you have to get the other camera. So you have to sort of get creative with blocking it out. So you're not seeing the other cameras. So it's like, it's like it a creative, Faust, it's like a creative Faustian it's, deal. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I'll tell you what, I'm like so happy that we had them because we were able to move a little bit faster because mm. of it. But the other thing is with two cameras, we have extra crew you need and things like that. Um, but, but luckily we, we had both and, and, and use them, but, um, uh, yeah, well, yeah, hopefully for the next one, we, we have a little more time and a little more money, but for this, I'm really glad that we, we had what we had. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, uh, when, when, you, when, when it was all in the can, as it were, um, what were you able to discover about satanic panic in the edit that, that only revealed itself at that point that you couldn't, you couldn't have foreseen, uh, in the scripting and the producing? Yeah. So for me, I, the editing process is probably, I mean, I love being on set is magical and everything that happens there, but, but editing, I think is, that, I mean, that's what will make or break your movie. A great editor um, is like, that's where the movie comes together. Mm -hmm. And that's where you discover new things about the movie that you probably didn't even know when you were shooting. Yeah. So, um, and my editor, Mike Sale, um, he's actually a comedy editor. So I knew him from my days of working uh, for Judd Apatow. So um, and he does huge blockbusters. He just had done skyscraper with, with Dwayne Johnson and he did wow. central intelligence. And so he, he does huge, huge blockbuster films. So basically what he makes, 
on like one week for one of those movies was his entire salary for Satanic <laughs> Panic. And he is just a friend and we stayed in touch, but he does have a background in, you know, he cut Freddy's nightmares for, for horror lovers out there. They'll know exactly what that is, but um, way back in the day. So he, and he loves horror, you know, he's a big horror fan and just hasn't had the, had the opportunity to really work on that much of it because he's in the comedy world. <laughs> so as someone who's a fan and, but knows all about, comedy timing I thought he would be the perfect person and we worked together and the editing process was um so much fun but you know you watch your first I don't go into editorial until there's an assembly so a lot of people will go in right away and look at dailies and all that I um you hope you have a great good, great script supervisor who's taking notes by your side mm -hmm. so the editor can have all of that um, and I, you know, I take that after I'm done shooting, I take a couple weeks to decompress and <laughs> get some sleep and get myself back on track. And then I come into editorial when there's an assembly. Um, and I watch the movie from start to finish for some people that is a, for some directors, that's a really tough, horrible experience. I believe, um, I believe I've heard, I've heard a lot of times that that first, the first watch is one of the worst, worst feelings for directors. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a very insensitive term called the suicide cut. A lot of people call it not a very PC way to phrase it, but that's what a lot of people refer to it as. It gets the point um, across. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And but for me, actually, I got lucky with both my movies. Instead of having a reaction of like, oh no, I was oh thank God, <laughs> I was like, oh great, I have a movie. Whew, okay, I was like, <laughs> it was relief. I was like, oh great, okay, something is here. Uh, where a lot of people have the opposite reaction. They're like, oh, no, it's never going to work. Mine mine was the opposite for both both movies. I was like, oh, great. Okay, we have a movie here. Um, let's get working. Um, and I think a couple things, you know, that we discovered when I think I'm trying to think of the scenes we worked on the most, probably the um, the, the skin sealing scene with with Gypsy doing the mm. spell and and Judy and Sam um, writing, you know, writing all the all the Enochian uh, that took the most time, the ending, um, and actually the, uh, the beginning part of the movie as well. I think those are the chunks that we had to take the most time working through. Um, and it's really interesting because originally in the script, um, so I'll give some, a little bit of insight yeah. on that. Um, so in the script, the scene with Gypsy doing the spell on Judy, yeah. Judy and Sam doing the skin sealing, and Duncan and Danica, where he's puking up his guts, those were actually all intercut together in the script. So all three of those scenes were cutting back and forth Got you. Um, in the script. But we've realized that when we were um, in the editing room, because the scene with Danica and Duncan is so tonally different than the scene with Sam and Judy, it wasn't working when we were cutting those all those th those three pieces together. So we ended up just cutting the scene with Duncan and Danica as its own separate piece. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard to think of that as the movie is now in any other way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's interesting. That's something we tried. We're like, why isn't this working? And we're like, well, wait a second. Let, what if we pull that whole scene out and make it its own separate scene? And we're like, oh, that works. Um, the beginning was actually uh, quite a bit longer. Um, we ended up, turning that sort of into a montage of Sam delivering to all these different people. Um, it, that was much, I think it took us about the right now, how the film is structured. I think it's nine minutes and then you're already in mill basin. So it's a very short sort of first act yeah. quote unquote. 
Um, originally, I think it was like maybe f- 15 minutes. Blimey, that's and, quite a lot to cut, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it's just, it's just, we, we just kind of reorganize things a little bit. Mm. And, um, a couple scenes where we're like, ah, are we, are we getting any new information here? And the most important thing with the beginning was to sympathize with Sam and mm. to feel for her. And, um, you need your audience to be on board with her immediately. So we had to make sure we're like, okay, even though we're cutting, you know, this up a bit, do, are we still on board with her? And luckily, like we are, you know, um, the audience is immediately, you know, it's, she's driving around in rain and no one's tipping her and she's dealing with these horrible people. And most of those things are like Grady did a bunch of research um, with pizza delivery folks. And a lot of that stuff that that is in there is, is all true is things that he heard about and encountered. Um, and and then the ending was its own sort of beast of how do we show sort of this. Um, what Sam is, what's happening to her with Baphomet, but it's sort of immaculate conception because he never physically is touching her. But we're like, we need to make sure that the audience is understanding that um, he's still uh, raping her and impregnating her from um, across the way because he's just so powerful that he doesn't even need any sort of penetration. So um, making sure that people, and I was using sort of that scene in Rosemary's baby kind of as an in, in what's when she's sort of, when she's raped by the devil to, to as an inspiration for, for that section of how to cut it and how to put that surrealism in it a little bit. Um, so we were modeling it off of that. Um, and, and also, and then the ending, like, you know, having her, you know, have this moment of riding off into the, into the sunset, um, sort of putting all those pieces together, uh, but yeah, it's amazing in, in editorial what you, you can discover in your film, and it's a it's it's pretty pretty magical part of the process for me. Oh no, it's, it's um, <clears throat> it never ceases to amaze me actually when when I speak to filmmakers about it how how it and it's it's no it's no it's no mark of any sort of unclear vision, is it? It's just that there is something else happening. It's almost like you're collaborating with somebody else, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you're just discovering so many new things that maybe you didn't even see when you were shooting. It's, it's very fascinating that it's, it's sort of like you're looking at it in a new light. And also your editor is just, you know, you're talking through things and what, you know, isn't working for me, but it's working for the editor. And then you're kind of talking it out and um, figuring out what the best thing is for the scene. And I also am a, and it's very, for me personally, it's really important for bigger budget movies. You do a test screening. So you bring in an audience, they watch the movie, they, you know, give notes on write out thoughts on these cards. There's an audience talk back. Um, and all those cards get sort of, uh, ingested and into like an online platform and, um, the, all the filmmakers and the filmmakers and the producers all kind of look at them and you get a, Hey, your movie scored this percentage and that will dictate whether your movie gets reshoots or not. Those are for big budget movies, but yeah, for yeah. independent movies, we can't afford to do a test audience. We can't afford to rent a theater. So instead I have my, my version of that, which is, I have a think tank, which is a group of um, fellow filmmakers, um, which are writers, directors, cinematographers, editors, actors, that I bring in to watch the movie when I have my director's cut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we had about 15, I had about 15 people come in and watch it. And then we just talk about it. What's working. I have my list of questions that I asked them. I said, is yeah. this working? Is that working? You know, and going through 
And actually one of the people that watched it suggested, they're like, you know, the opening was feeling slow. And they're like, what if you just did a montage? Oh, and we're like, ah, we've, we've tried it. It didn't quite work, but we didn't really give it a fair shake. So like, maybe, maybe we go back and try it again. And sure enough, that's what ended up, what we ended up using. And that's what, what worked. Um, so I usually do two rounds of that. So I'll, I'll do a big one and then I'll do a smaller one after that and to see if there's anything else I'm missing. Because you know what someone, what they're going to catch, your audience is probably going to catch. So it's sort of like your first line of defense before. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, you, the first time I ever saw it with an audience was in, uh, at the world premiere. I hadn't seen it with a big, big group of people Get aside from town. my group of friends. Yeah, that was the first time. So that was obviously very nerve wracking. Um, every audience sort of reacts to things differently. There are this, the things that people all react to. And then it sort of depends on where I am, but I've seen it play sort of all over the place now. Um, and I actually just had a screening at my, um, my, the university where I went to college yeah. and it's actually the youngest audience that's, that I've, that's seen it, you know, with me present, mm -hmm. um, cause there's a bunch of college students and wow, they got, it was probably the best audience I've had. They got everything the things they were reacting to, I was like, oh my God, no one has like certain, that's something that hasn't played, like no one's picked up on that. And it was really awesome. And I was like, oh my, cause that's, I mean, that's who I essentially made the movie for like horror lovers and um, teenagers basically. And mm. to see them just be a hundred percent on board with everything happening and them sort of interacting with the movie um, like, oh, no, no, don't drink that Coke. Don't drink it. Like, was really so <laughs> great. And I was like, oh, my God, no one's reacted to that yet. And to hear them, um, it was really magical. And I stay in the theater for every screening. A lot of people, directors, don't really want to do that. Um, but I stay in because for me, it's like it's a learning experience. And um, I get it's hard because a lot of times you can just see the flaws. And obviously, I watch it and I'm like, oh, fuck, I wish I would have, you know, yeah. changed this or changed that. And um but you can't, it's done. There's nothing I can do about it at this point. The movie's out. Um, it's going to be on Blu-ray soon. You, you know, you, you're done. And I feel like nothing's ever finished. It's abandoned. So, um, I, uh, you know, it's done. So there's nothing I can change. So I just have to, you know, I, I embrace it and I love it. Um, but it's so magical to see your audience just be totally on board and loving it. And I also had an incredible screening here in LA. So sort of the same thing happened. Um, and it was, uh, it's just the coolest experience and it makes you remember how like magical it is to make movies. And you're going to be in town for the Grimfest screening. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to be there for it. I'm so bummed out. I actually have a conflict um, in Los Angeles. Well, so I'm missing it. That is quite far away from Manchester. So I think that's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> As a, I, one thing that dawned on me when we, when we've been talking is obviously the theme, the theme about the theme about the, the sort of, the 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 trope the trope about rich people and their relationship with the devil um is is one that we 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 can we we just find believable it's not like we go oh that's <laughs> that's ridiculous yet yet the phrase the devil works makes work for idle hands is is used to imply the sort of feckless or lazy whereas in fact what your film demonstrates again it's just a thought that dawned on me what your film sort of demonstrates perfectly is the devil makes work for idle hands is that it, the people that worship that get time to worship the devil are the idle rich. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> it just dawned. I mean, like just having to think about it then. But it's a, it's an absolute hooty film, and um, uh, I'm sure the Manchester audience are going to embrace it 
as much as your uh, your LA and your, your university audience. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I loved chatting with you. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.